Today Does Not Compute is brought to you by Rollbar. Anyone who has apps in production knows just how important good error monitoring is. Rollbar makes it really easy to integrate your error tracking with all the tools you know and love, like Heroku, GitHub, Slack, HipChat, Trello, and PagerDuty. That makes it super easy to track deploys, jump between errors and source code, and get error notifications where they'll be most helpful to you. Rollbar has client libraries for all the most popular languages and frameworks, and takes just a few minutes to integrate with your app. When you sign up by visiting rollbar.com DNC, you'll get 90 days of their bootstrap plan for free, which is a super cool deal and really gives you time to play with the service. Sean and I both use Rollbar for personal projects and like them a lot, so definitely give them a look. Check out rollbar.com DNC today. So, Sean, try any cool new technology out this week? I did. Uh, Remember, I don't know how many episodes it was ago, but we talked about Let's Encrypt a little bit and how if it makes setting your HTTPS stuff up any easier, it's going to be incredible. Yeah. I remember we tried it out a little bit and it was all right. It was still kind of uh, funky a little bit, but I think maybe last week it was, I came across this thing called CertBot, which is like the new updated version of Let's Encrypt. And I tried it out recently. So our for our GitLab server, our SSL needed to be updated. And so gave Serpot a try. And in maybe 10 minutes, I had it set up and working perfectly. So what is Serpot? Uh, it's like the predecessor to Let's Encrypt. So if I remember correctly, Let's Encrypt were, it was like a, a tool that you could use, but it wasn't completely automated. It still required you to do a bunch of stuff. Uh, and Certbot is a newer version where you install Certbot and it runs kind of a setup program. And so it opens up and you answer questions and it actually does all of you the setup for you. So it's completely automated. And then it also comes with a tool where it auto updates your certificates. So after 90 days, I think it is the, the Let's Encrypt certificates expire. And so what this does, it will auto update those for you every 90 days. So you can just set it and forget it. That's really, really awesome. And it seems to be working well. Yeah, it worked really well. The The great thing is that the website has tons of documentation. Um, it has the developer docs, API docs, but it also has different docs for like say Nginx on Ubuntu versus Nginx on CentOS, right? So you can get customized documentation for not only the, the server that you're using, whether it's Apache or um, Nginx or something like that, uh, down to the OS you're on, whether it's Ubuntu or another flavor of Linux. Very cool. Uh, this sounds like it might actually be a really nice fit for the free Heroku SSL stuff now that that's in beta. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. I tried to get in the beta last night, but it was already full. It's going to bum me out. Yeah, I was in the same boat. I tried to, but they were booked out. Yeah, so it worked really well with GitLab. I mean, GitLab, we're using the Omnibus install, so it's kind of self-contained. And all we had to do was run CertBot, and then it kind of told us where our uh, certificates were on the server. And then we went into the... So GitLab has a gitlab.rb file, which acts as your overall configuration. And all I did was update the locations of those certificates and reconfigure the server, which is just a one-line command. And we were up and running. I screwed it up somehow. So the green lock was showing up. So the SSL was installed. But when I tried to copy repos over from GitHub or something, it wouldn't work. And after using CertBot, apparently it did a better job than I did because now it works. So I'll take what I can get. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that, the fact that it's working is what really matters, right? 
Right. So, I mean, there's so many little nuances, right? When you're, when you're doing this SSL stuff, it's kind of hard to remember, especially if you're not doing it a lot. If it's kind of a once a year thing, it's really difficult to keep all of these steps in mind and get it right the first time. Um, but that seems to be where Serpot really shines is, you know, you set it up and you forget it and it auto updates. So and theoretically, I would never have to touch it again unless we moved servers. But even then I can just copy stuff over and it should work. I, I feel like that's a pretty common thread is like you'll have something that developers, even if you're not DevOps, but you're just a developer, you'll have to end up doing these DevOpsy things sometimes. And it's really difficult to remember this stuff if you're not doing it every day. And I, so I just love to see these tools like Serpot, um, where they take this DevOps concept that can be kind of a pain and expose it in just a really easy, straightforward way. I think that's I think that's super cool and something that's very useful because that seems to be a common experience for developers. Yeah, so I feel like a lot of developers, they're... I guess maybe if they're working for a smaller company or say you're a developer working for a design shop, most of the designers or the managers will have no concept of what you do. They just think you do some magic stuff. And so along with the software development, they'll kind of lump in DevOps as well. Like, oh, you can set this up, can't you? When in reality, it's a totally different discipline, right? And I might be like, yeah, I can try and figure it out. In reality, I have no idea. <laughs> you know What that means is I'm just going to go and Google and mess around until it might work. Uh, but tools like this, make me seem like I'm not human to those people. Uh, but really, I mean, it just saves me time and it saves me frustration, which are the biggest things, the frustration part, because I have plenty of things to be frustrated about. And now uh, it seems like SSL certs are not one of them. So you actually just sent me a link to this. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it. I don't think you are either. It's friend or friend, possibly. It's F-R-E-N-D. Uh, check it out, F-R-E-N-D.co. Well, link in show notes as well. But basically what this is, is it is a set of components, kind of like a jQuery UI or things you've seen before. Bootstrap also has similar tools like these, accordions, tabs, that sort of stuff. But what's different about it is that friend, I'm just going to call it friend, is designed to be accessible. So it'll work well with screen readers and other assistive technologies and very keyboard friendly, which I think those are both great goals for something like this. Yeah, my favorite thing, I mean, maybe this is selfish might not be the right word, but I'm I'm spoiled with the fact that I can see well. So my favorite thing about this is that uh the keyboard shortcuts make things really easy. I think for me when I when I use an application and the keyboard shortcuts are there and actually useful, it makes it feel like a whole nother level of polished. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And one of the things I really love about this is it has this thing called a bypass link. Now, I hadn't actually ever heard of this before, but it's really, really cool. Uh, basically, what it is, is it adds a couple links, basically like a table of contents to the top of the page, but they're completely hidden. They're invisible, and you only see them if you hit tab. So the first time you hit tab, it'll actually say, skip to this section in the document. And the second time, it'll say, skip to this section in the document. And you can just hit enter to jump to it. And I just think that's awesome because, first of all, that's going to be really friendly to screen readers because... They're gonna, people are going to be looking at these links, they're going to be going through them, and it's going to show up right there, table of contents, jump to what you need to. But it's also very, very cool for keyboard navigation, because otherwise you're kind of stuck with the arrow keys or the space bar to jump around the page, and that's doesn't give you a sense of structure of the page, and it's also kind of mm, all or nothing, like space bar jumps you an entire screen length. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's really important stuff to consider, and a lot of the time we're so busy... We're, we're maybe building an accordion, right? 
uh, and we have so much other stuff to do that we we build it and make it work in our browsers. And we don't necessarily have time to go back and think about the accessibility implications or even the keyboard shortcut implications. Uh, so something like this is really useful for me in the next project where I have to build an accordion or something like that. I'll just come here and look at the research that was done, right? So I can just benefit from the time that was put in here. And that means that the users of my products are even better for it. So I think this is a really great resource in the fact that it's going to save me time and it also applies a real benefit to my to my programs or my user interfaces. And to kind of piggyback off of something you said, Paul, you mentioned the the document, like the structure of the document. And something I started doing recently was I installed a Chrome plugin. I'll have to put, I don't remember what it's called, but I'll put it in the show notes. But essentially what it does is it opens a pop-up and it has your document outline. So it parses your HTML and shows you what structurally your HTML, what you're building, you know? And so what I've been doing is if I have questions about which tag to use or how to structure some markup, I'll open up the actual document outline and see how it's represented to me in the structural form. And that's been really useful, uh, but not only th- not only in learning how to structure my documents, it's also been useful in, you know, how does an actual computer interpret this? How is Google going to look at this? How is a screen reader going to look at this? It's been really, really useful. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of tools out there that help you break down the outline, as it were, of your HTML documents. And I, I think that's always a super interesting thing to look at because it, it's kind of when you're building out a site and it's especially if it's really heavily custom designed, a lot of times you kind of lose that structure, that sense of hierarchy in your mind um, or you or you look at it differently than it's actually represented in the code and, and kind of having a reminder of that exactly what the computer is seeing and thinking, as it were. Yeah, the, the, the point that you made about when, you know, when design becomes or the design of a website becomes pretty spread out or intense, it's really easy to forget that underneath everything you're working with a markup language, which is structure, right? You're building a document, like oh, like almost a Word document, right? So you have headings and you have paragraphs and those things tie together. It's really easy to get lost in the design and in the aesthetics of things. Uh, so that's been really helpful for me to kind of take a step back. And we've we've been talking about how important it is to kind of take a step back from things every now and then and try to gain perspective. And for me, this is a quick way to do that. I can look at the overall document structure and see what's actually going on under the hood. Right. I guess if it's like you're building a car and you start focusing too much on the aesthetics of the car, you might forget some things that are important to make the car structurally sound. Yeah. And this is interesting. I never even thought about this until just now, but I actually kind of do this manually a lot of times when I'm building out a site. What I find myself doing almost every time now is I don't write any CSS or JavaScript at the beginning. I literally just build out a completely plain browser default style HTML document. And that just gives me so much context for how I want my HTML to look, both as a as a developer, how I want it to look, and what it's going to feel like eventually for for users. Because I think, I think that HTML structure d- does, or at least should, inform the design in some ways. It 100% should, because the design that you're working with is going into the medium of HTML, right? It's going into the markup language. So it absolutely should inform it because you wouldn't design a car or you wouldn't design some crazy thing and just be like, make this work on a car body. Or you wouldn't design some crazy thing and just be like, this is going to have to work as a bicycle, right? There needs to be some level of understanding 
in how to build a car or a bike before you design something, an accessory or even a skin, I guess, for a car or a bike, right? It just makes sense that you would understand a little bit about that first. Yeah. And one thing that always kind of strikes me when I do build out a site in that way, I look at it, the page done with all the HTML there, all the content on the page, but completely unstyled. And a lot of times it's surprisingly reasonable. Sure, the fonts are not great. It's just times and it's just black and white. But I look at it and it's like, oh, wow, this is responsive. And it actually has really nice hierarchy. And it's very clear what navigation is and where it's going to what it's going to do and how you find things. And the content takes front and center stage, right? You know, it's funny that you say that completely unstyled page is easy to look at. It's easy to understand the information that's being conveyed. It's easy to see the navigation. Um, All of the main reasons for making a website are incredibly apparent at that stage. Granted, it's a single column and it's a bunch of text, but that's fine. You know, there's structure there. The interesting thing is, and not that I'm trying to blame designers or anything like that, because as programmers do plenty of things to detract from the usefulness of websites, uh, scroll jacking, scroll jacking. (laughs) But it's funny, you know, that when you strip all the aesthetics away, it kind of stands on its own. It's usable in its own right, which is the whole point. You know, the whole point of a website is to communicate information not necessarily, I guess more now and now they are to make people spend money. Like the whole point is to funnel someone to a CTA and they click a button and money goes into a Stripe account somewhere. Um, but really at the core of it, they're trying to communicate information about their product and it, a supplementary thing that they want to happen is people to spend money because of the information they shared about their product, right? Uh, so yeah, no, that's really interesting. Just thinking about pulling all the aesthetics away, pulling the JavaScript, the sliding menus, the animations, whatever, pulling that all away and seeing does your content live on its own? Right. And I mean, I think this is also something that the industry as a whole is starting to kind of bend back towards a little bit, especially with stuff like Google has AMP, Facebook has instant articles. There are these technologies where they are stripping away all the unnecessary stuff. They're saying, okay, you don't even get JavaScript or you get some limited subset of it. You don't get auto-playing video, you don't get audio tags, you literally, you get text on a page, you don't even get to style it, you can throw in an image or two here and there, and that's it. And guess what? It loads really fast and it's super readable. Like whenever I tap on an instant article link on Facebook, I have a great experience as a reader. You know what? I need to check that out because I haven't actually read any instant articles yet. I know that pretty soon I'll have to be making some updates to this app that I made that we'll have to publish to that and also Medium and some other stuff. But it's interesting when you're describing that, stripping out all of the extra stuff away down to the information, it's kind of like an API of sorts. You know, you're building your markup language. If you follow the kind of set the beaten path away of structuring your markup, you know, if you do things semantically, then something like Facebook Instant Articles can grab your markup and parse it and it understands what's going on because you followed the conventions that were set forward set forth by, you know, whoever's doing the the HTML documentation. It's really incredible. I mean, I know there are a lot of mixed feelings on instant articles in general and the whole concept of designing markup specific to any site or app. But as a user, they're pretty great. Objectively, they're just solid. You tap on the link, it's already loaded. There's no wait time. There's nothing sliding up over the page trying to sell you something. It's content that looks nice And it looks the same no matter whose instant article you're reading. It just looks like good content and it loads incredibly quickly and is very easy to read. I think that's great. That sounds amazing. What you just explained there, good content, easy to read, loads quickly. That's the dream. 
what, like, what else matters beyond that? It that's, really... That's the dream of the internet. That was why it was created in the first place, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm just I'm just really happy to see that we're kind of getting back to that a little bit. Yeah, the whole, you know, content is king thing has been around for a while, but it's definitely true. And funny, you know, the funny thing is working for a consulting agency, I can specifically tell how a project's going to go based off of the no- the amount of content we have when a project is started. So we can always say, you know, when we're when we're updating our briefs, like we have to require content up first. We can say that, but that doesn't always happen. Most cases it doesn't because if someone's trying to redesign, they might not have content for a section that might be created in the design, right? Or in the, the planning phase. Uh, but it's interesting to me when I look back at the last, you know, 30 sites that I've done, the the experience in building the thing when you have content versus you don't, and then getting content after the fact, it's a totally different world, completely different world. So Paul, you sent me a link um, to yesterday, yesterday, I think it was, uh, that I thought was particularly interesting and that I have talked with a couple of people about and heard differing viewpoints, and I would like to talk to you about it. Uh, but the website that you sent me was called CSS Purge, and the subheading is Saving the Web One Kilobyte at a Time. So essentially, uh, I think we may have talked about it or referenced it before, but I think the article was called uh, Scaling CSS by Adam Morse. Uh, and this article is kind of along a similar idea in where it compares um, a bunch of CSS files from the 42 really popular sites like Apple and Facebook and Pinterest and Medium, etc. And it has a bunch of charts and it breaks down like how many specific selectors there are, how much repeated you know selectors and properties there might be in, in the file. And it shows a CSS specificity graph and all that. And then it just kind of talks about functional CSS a little bit. It gives some examples, like it lists examples like base CSS and tachyons and pure CSS and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, w- I would like to get your uh, get your overall take on this. Well, I think the first thing that struck me about CSS Purge is that it's a really, really well designed site. It looks awesome. It's gorgeous. They've done they've done an awesome job here. Even if you uh, don't really care about CSS that much, you should still check the site out because it's super cool and really just visually worth looking at. What's interesting to me about this site is that it doesn't just say, hey, okay, all these sites are doing it wrong. Pinterest has too much CSS. Medium has too much CSS. And they are kind of saying that in a way, but they're not overt about it. They're saying, hey, here's what's common on the internet. And here are some ways to fix it. They actually provide a lot of real world examples of how you can start integrating utility classes into your site or app. And I think that's pretty neat. It's it's very it does a very good job of educating about why these things are issues and how you can start to resolve them in your own code base, which I think is super cool. I think the way they approached it was really nice. It didn't feel like a a forceful push or you should be doing this. It's like it's saying, hey, this is what's going on. And you could either do this or you can do this, uh, specifically the example of the, the button example. So a lot of times when you're using SAS or a compiled CSS, things compile out to nav, ul, li, a.button, and then you have your properties, right? So as we're authoring our styles, you know, even though there's the rule, like don't nest more than twice or more than three times, uh, the, the CSS still compiles out to being, you know, three or four or five selectors deep for almost every rule. And in this example is saying you could do this, nav, ul, li, a.button, or you could simply just do dot button. And so you can use a dot button class anywhere in your HTML, just slap it around. And we've seen, you know, a lot of people doing this. Uh, for example, Bootstrap has a lot of these kind of dot button or dot utility styles. 
but I really liked how they approach this. So they show practical examples like here's a really common pattern and here's how you could do it or you could extract that repeated stuff into classes and here's how you could do it this way. And then underneath that, it actually breaks down the the specificity um, count for each item. So for example, rule A, the long one is 14 and rule B is 10. So it's much less specific. It's going to be much easier to debug if anything goes wrong with your button class. They've actually done a pretty deep analysis of all of these sites as well. It's not just, oh, this site has this many kilobytes of CSS. They actually break it down into how many times a float rule is declared and how many unique colors there are, how many media queries are used in the code base, how what the highest specificity is of a selector. It's pretty nifty. It's very detailed analysis. And what's really nice about that is it's all laid out in a table. You can sort it. And that makes it really easy to compare on any one of these metrics. You can see exactly where your code base lines up and then figure out which things you should be focusing on, like where you're going to get the most bang for your buck, what the low hanging fruit is. So if you have, you know, 300 colors, let's see. Okay. The highest number of colors in here is 199 unique colors. And so if you have a lot of colors, then you can probably cut that down pretty easily. You can probably consolidate that. That would be an easy win. And I I really like that that makes it kind of actionable, that it's all broken out into the separate metrics. Yeah, the actionable thing is huge. We've talked in the past about performance, how the you want to basically do the, the least amount of work to get the most payoff. And those are the things you should do. Uh, and this is kind of the similar idea, right? And so what they, they use a site called cssstats.com that was originally made by members and uh, Brent Jackson. And you plug in a URL to a CSS file and it analyzes it. And then you get these really nice uh, layouts. So it'll tell you, rules versus selectors versus declarations. You have, like for example, you might have 94 total font size declarations, 20 float declarations or something like that, 24 unique colors. And it actually lists all them down in a really nice way. And this has actually been really useful for me as I'm working on projects, I can pop my CSS file into this and look. So for example, I've been using some SAS functions to spit out lots of utility classes that I use. And I'm noticing on a site that I'm working on, that there's 27 unique font sizes. Now, there are definitely not 27 unique font sizes in the design and used, uh, but my functions are spitting out 25 font sizes. And I might only be using four. So a really big win in slimming down my CSS would be to change the number of steps that that function runs through. I mean, that's a one-line change, and I get instant payoff for that. And I mean, down the line, if you if you apply some of these quick wins to your CSS over and over, then suddenly your CSS is much smaller than it used to be. Right. And the nice thing about tackling the low-hanging fruit first is if you take that approach, you're actually going to end up with a cleaner code base every time you tackle one of those items. Every time you finish up something, if you reduce your colors or you reduce the amount of media queries or you reduce whatever, that's actually going to reduce the complexity overall of your code base, which will expose other fruit, right? It'll expose other things that you can easily do because you put in the work to clean some basic stuff up. So it all leads into itself. It all gets progressively easier because you are improving your code base. So it's not like you're going to do three of these things and then get stuck. You'll do three of these things and then realize, oh, now that I've done those three, I can really easily move on to, I don't know, reducing the number of floats or reducing something else about my code base. And I I think that's that's pretty awesome how that kind of takes you down that trail. Right. I mean... A lot of programmers talk about fighting for simplicity, how it's difficult to make sure that things keep staying simple, right? 
And so the project that I specifically mentioned here where I'm using CSS stats to keep control or like keep a rein in on stuff, uh, it's been maybe, what, seven or eight months. I think, Paul, you started it when you were at Octopus and I took it over and I'm still working on it. <laughs> but it's it's kind of been almost as important as linting my CSS or JavaScript, right? So you can use linters to catch syntax errors. You can catch it to, you can use them to catch style errors. Um, you use CSS to make sure you're not doing things like nesting too much or doing, you know, doing things you shouldn't be doing. Um, but then tools like performance things like CSS stats, I think are also really important as you're working on this stuff, because it really sucks to work for seven months and then run it through an analyzer and then being like, crap, I have a lot to clean up you know, before this thing should go out the door. If you're kind of incre- incrementally checking on it, you can check on the health. It's kind of like looking on the health of your style sheets, right? Is it getting too big? Does it need to go on a diet? Do I need to slim things down? And running something like this periodically will help a ton. But yeah, I mean, so functional CSS, object-oriented CSS aside, what, you know, whatever you, however you choose to write your CSFs, tools like this are very useful because in the end, it all gets hopefully it all gets spit into one style sheet and compressed and all that. So the problems that happen at the end of the road, d- despite how you're writing it at the beginning, are st- they're still existing. So tools like this are, you know, even if you don't agree with us that functional CSS is really useful, tools like this would still benefit you greatly. Right. Yeah. You don't necessarily need to use functional CSS to achieve a lot of these things, like stuff like colors, for example. You can put those in variables in a single file. And I know people have mixed feelings on color variables. I do myself. But I think that that there are multiple ways to achieve a lot of these things that don't necessarily mean you have to do utility classes or functional CSS or atomic CSS. It, you can do CSS however you want. If you want to do BEM, you can still do that, but there are certain global things like the overall file size and the number of like making sure that you bundle everything up as a single file, that sort of stuff. Reducing your specificity can still be done using these other methods, at least to an extent. So it's important to remember that this isn't just for one methodology. This is hopefully something that helps anybody who's writing CSS. Yeah, we're all just fighting the, we're just fighting the cascade, you know? Cascade's fighting like, the cascade. Cascade's like, we're like the resistance, you know, in Star Wars. And Cascade <laughs> is like the synth, the synth. Now I can't even remember the game's name. I'm just falling apart right now. Thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring today's episode. Rollbar makes it way easier to find and fix errors in your apps. Instead of relying on user-reported errors or manually digging through logs, Rollbar will notify you whenever something goes wrong. It's super easy to integrate with pretty much every major language and framework, so much so that you can start tracking production errors and deploys in just minutes. Rollbar integrates with lots of the services you already use and love, like Trello, Slack, PagerDuty, Heroku, and GitHub. Make sure to check them out at rollbar.com slash DNC, and they'll give you 90 days of their bootstrap plan for free. Thanks again to Rollbar, and remember to give them a look at rollbar.com slash DNC. If you like chatting with other developers and designers, you should definitely join the Spec Slack. It's really easy to sign up. Just visit spec.fm slash slack. There are over 4,500 members, which means there's always an interesting conversation going on. Once you've joined, don't forget to come say hi in the Does Not Compute channel. Yeah, everything in my life relates back to Bob's Burgers in my mind. 
anytime someone types with all caps in Slack, I just assume it's his voice. <laughs> yeah, I think all caps seems more Gene to me than Bob, really. Gene as Bob or just Gene? Just Gene. More Gene than Bob. Little Bob was genius. That was a great, great episode. I think you've seen a lot more Bob's Burgers than I have. <laughs>